Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. For this episode, we discuss the changing regime in the US and how we are organising our clients' investments to make the most of the post-pandemic economy. With Nikki Eggers, Head of Investments, Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer, and Jean-Paul Yeagers, Head of Asset Allocation. Hello, welcome to another episode of Word on the Street. This is a big moment for our clients because we're trading our updated new strategic asset allocations across our, our client accounts and funds. What this is about, it's it's about setting or, or sort of readjusting our investment posture to really reflect our views on, on the next decade and the positioning that we think is appropriate at a basic level. That's my layperson type of way of explaining it. But but thankfully, you've got some experts that will explain it in a bit more detail. So I have Will. Will is finally back. Will, Happy New Year. I can't believe this is surely... It's late to say Happy New Year, isn't yeah. it? Yes, no, I'm, I'm very glad but to it, be back. It's Nikki. good to have you back. And John Paul Yeagers as well, who's our head of asset allocation. So we're going to get through all of our strategic asset allocation update. But we've also got a lot of news flow to, to talk about. A fresh Italian political crisis. We've had the inauguration of President Joe Biden and some more data to chew on, which shows us some of the effects of lockdown. So, Will, let's let's get you starting starting us off and back into the fold. Thinking about Italy, it seems that the snap Italian elections and and potentially a more combative from the EU's perspective government under the leadership of Matteo Salvini has has faded again. Yeah, that's right, Nikki, and, and I think you know that that uh, you know you rightly point out that, that that an immediately more disruptive political path looks to have been avoided for now. But we know with Italy that gov- governments can come and go uh, pretty quickly. But I think the point here is uh, yet another reminder to not get sucked into a kind of calendar-based approach to risk identification. The most potent risks for markets and investors, both positive and negative, tend to be those that come uh, without warning from either diaries or other sources. I'm sure you know Rob Smith and team would tell us that this focus on the risks suggested by the calendar is simply a kind of an illusory comfort blanket, a function of our need to feel in some control of the year ahead, unfortunately. That's not possible. <laughs> so trying to work our way through through those knowns, even though the outcome of them can be quite unknown. But we've we've had the recent inauguration of President Biden. Clearly, we're in a in a pretty perilous economic and and societal position in the US. The pandemic is clearly making an incredible impact. But also, he has quite well, there's quite a slim majority in the Senate for for the Democrats. So. What kind of scope does he have to pursue some of the agenda that that we're probably reading about in the papers? Markets do seem to be expecting something in the way of stimulus coming down the pipeline. And obviously that does owe something to the sort of incoming new administration. But remember, though, that that, that there is significant uncertainty with regards to the timing and size of the the various bits of stimulus coming down the pipeline. And most people are looking at sort of two potential chunks in the near future. Quite a lot will depend here on legislative tactics, among other things. So, for example, 
example, the budget reconciliation process that allows administrations to push stuff through with a simple Senate uh, Senate majority uh, rather than the supermajority is a legislative gun that can only be fired a limited number of times. And it contains several steps too. So it can take a little bit longer versus the more traditional legislative techniques. Now, now generally, as you know, we normally talk about politics as a pretty unpredictable variable in investing. Most of the time, we can take some reassurance from the idea that the ebbs and flows of, in the sort of political sphere are more newsworthy than they are market influencing. However, a good example of some of the difficulties for investors here was actually kind of nicely embodied in the recent Georgia Senate runoffs. So you had two Senate races uh, where the candidates, as you know, were neck and neck uh, in the polls, both uh, in both races, literally impossible to split, um, accounting for, for polling error and so on. Now, at stake was a Senate majority and a good deal of the new president's ability to actually implement his new agenda. So if you think about it, it's a kind of sliding doors moment. Now, in a sense, it's a bit of an oversimplification, but these are the types of conundrums that the strategic asset allocation that comes from JP and the guys, you know, that they're what they have to solve for. But at a global level, way more complex, multiplied many times over. You know, the question is, how do we organize client portfolios so that they are so that they are robust to the myriad potential futures that lie ahead? not just the one that is a continuation of the recent past. Okay, so so just trying to unpick that a little bit and, and hoping that you can do a better job than my slightly um, uh, ham-fisted way of trying to explain the strategic asset allocation. But in, in you know, simple language, Will, what, what is it and, and what are we trying to do with it? Uh, well, Nikki, I think, I think we'll probably have to rely on JP for the more sophisticated uh, response because <laughs> I'd actually go very much similar. I, I think, you know, the strategic asset allocation, like you said, it's the name of the process by which we organise the overwhelming majority of client assets. It's the prescribed long-term mix of asset classes, stocks, bonds, commodities, etc., etc., that is designed to most effectively, efficiently and smoothly scoop up whatever investment returns the wider world makes available. Like I say, I'm sure JP has a, a better explanation, but that's how I understand it in a nutshell. So JP, what, what actually makes the strategic asset allocation refresh this exercise quite complicated? Because, you know, one, one might look at the outcome and say, well, it's just a, a proportional selection of asset classes. How do you go about it? Hi, Nikki. Yes. So it's it's actually the main obstacle is that we only know history. So while we actually need to have all the expectations for the future and accurate as well. So, for example, if we put investment portfolios together, we need to know when we put assets in those portfolios. Well, what will those returns be? We also need to think about how do they behave? We also need to think then about how that will be for the next five to 10 years, as this is quite a strategic shaping of, of the portfolios. And we all know that this is inherently inherently uncertain. And and so you talk about that trade-off there. So how do you address it? Well, this this is something where yeah, Barclays has been working on for quite some years. And, and actually in, in the team, we spend a lot of time uh, working on what we would call uh, so-called robustness. So it essentially means making the portfolios suitable for many different futures. And it's also something that Will was hinting at. So when we think about investment portfolios, because there's so many things uncertain about the futures, we try to prepare portfolios uh, to be appropriate for many of those outcomes. What we do is we mix and match observed past returns many times over. So to create in that sense, many, many, many futures. And what we then do is we rein in the extremes a little bit. So where we have the largest weights in portfolios or the smallest weights, we insert a little bit of humility by reining in 
those extremes because yeah as, as said we we know that a lot of those inputs and estimates we need will come with a yeah with a lot of uncertainty got it and well, what do you see as some of, uh, of those high-level observations that might make their way into the process? Yeah, I mean, so, so I mean, the context for this essay is obviously very important. And, and, you know, we're not the only ones doing this. Everyone in the industry is sort of coming up with their long-term asset allocations. But, you know, the fact that, the you know, much of the bond market is offering very little to investors, you know, most major governments are enticing you to lend to them with the promise that you will lose money after inflation. Now, that is a problem for diversified investors, to be honest, is historically this part of the world's capital markets formed a really important part of most investment portfolios. And, and there's no real you know, direct exact substitute for this exposure. Now, in, in this context, I guess there's, a, you know, there's three observations I would make. First, you know, part of the process. And remember, this is JP's very humble about this stuff. But, you know, this is months, even years of incredibly painstaking work from JP and team. But part of that process was a kind of root and branch evaluation of all of the inputs, the asset classes we use to populate our asset allocation. You know, what's your toolkit? Now, this investigation focused on longer term historic return patterns, academic intuition behind the existence of positive expected returns, uh, you know, the degree to which a particular asset actually offered something different, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, anyway, suffice it to say it was pretty exhaustive. The conclusion from this was actually that, you know, the equity real estate sector was not really offering our clients sufficiently different exposure. So it was removed. You know, inflation linked bonds were added um, in, in some part for the exact opposite reason. And the type of exposures that we looked for in alternative trading strategy space, you know, hedge funds and so on, that was refined significantly. The second point is that as a result of sort of, you know, these factors in a way there's quite a lot less cash in portfolios that's really you know in deference to that you know the fact that we just don't think cash is going to return you anything uh, decent over the next several years so you might describe the SAA as more invested and finally you know as with all kind of investors right now because of that aforementioned point on bonds and available interest rates we are having to take a, a bit more kind of investment risk to achieve the same return now we think we've done this in the most efficient way uh, possible, offering the maximum potential return for the risks that we think we're taking. Uh, and remember, this trade-off is always at the heart. You know, the trade-off between risk and return is always at the heart of uh, of investing. There's no something for nothing, unfortunately. So that's what these kind of these these SAAs are all about. Like that best possible trade-off you can achieve. And, and JP, any specific assets that that have seen a higher weighting uh, that you've particularly liked with the refreshed asset allocations, what what are we seeing being added to? We see in, in, in particular the commodity exposure. So here we talk about diversified commodity exposures. We see them increase in weights across the SEAs. And also, as Will just mentioned, we have been including inflation-linked bonds in the fixed income uh, sections of portfolios. Here we think it makes sense to have a little bit more inflation protection in, in the multi-asset portfolios. I think it's it, it's quite interesting that if you look to the portfolios getting more invested, as as Will just hinted at, is that you see the lower risk tolerant portfolios that allocations go to ATS, so that's absolute return funds, and investment grade bonds, so that's the high quality uh, corporate bonds, at the expense of the reduction in cash and the traditional fixed income. As as we think that fixed income and cash returns are actually c- quite quite low. What we do see is in the more risk-tolerant portfolios, so portfolios that can take on and and absorb a little bit more risk, we see particularly the allocations to equities increase uh, alongside the aforementioned commodity holdings. 
Okay, and and you mentioned there commodities exposure being increased, and intuitively, I guess for people that follow markets and and might understand that perhaps commodities have not been stellar performers, let's say, over the last decade or, or so. As as we're looking to allocate for the next decade or so, can you can you just unpack a little bit why? That increase makes sense to you and the team. Yes, it's a very good point. So, so here I think it's crucial that we keep a portfolio lens. So very often when we look at portfolios and SCAs, it's it's the portfolio lens that we should maintain. There are a few points to make. So I think we cannot just look simply at past performance. Yes, commodities have had some years where it has a quite poor performance in in recent decades. Uh, but we should not forget, and that might not be in front of the memory of this generation of investors, but there has been large parts of of time in history where equity and fixed income returns had very poor returns as well for quite some time, which often were followed by strong returns at some moment. Um, so therefore, as, as, as Will just explained, we've done some exercise where we look at what are the unique exposures. And here we do think that in a multi-asset context, uh, commodities do play a role. We, we clearly can see there is some diversification effect. So it's clearly some different exposure in the portfolio compared to equities and bonds and other assets that you might hold in the portfolio. And we do think there is a clear rationale as why you would need to expect a risk premium over a long period of time. And that's linked to inventories. The second uh, point I would make is that when we look at the quality of the portfolio, and here we can express it, for example, in client happiness, we see that it drops if we take out commodities. So we see that it improves the quality of the portfolio and makes it more robust for crises if commodities play a role within the multi-asset portfolio. The last point I would say was, it, it, and that's very often quite hard, is we should resist the temptation by singling out a single asset class on performance. By definition, by diversification, there will be winners, there will be losers in the portfolio. But as said, it's the portfolio that should deliver what we should expect for clients. Very crudely, so if commodities would have uh, had a very different return, for example, in the past decade, very strong returns, it might have been that your fixed income and your equities would have had a much more difficult time. So if one goes up, the other goes down, that, that's the part of what I described, that initial, the challenge of the asset allocation. We need to understand how assets behave and what returns they, they generate over time. And that's quite a complex task. So here it's crucial we resist the temptation by singling out single assets and just keep the portfolio lens. And this is a process that is set up to fit the long term and avoid getting too much influenced by yeah, the recent past performance. Um, Will, any further thoughts from you? Yeah, I mean, so, so JP makes a great point there. And I was just thinking, you know, if you had an SAA where you just bought the assets that have done well in the last 10 years, you'd likely have an extremely expensive portfolio apart from anything else. But also that's exactly the opposite of what you're trying to do with SAA in many ways. But, you know, I think more broadly, I, I hope that clients can feel reassured that this SAA is the result of you know, robust, meticulously stress-tested process, a function of, you know, a decade of iterative improvements, you know, that the people associated with it, you know, JP's team, of course, is at the center, but also, you know, the mass of people required from everything from stress testing and check and challenge to actually implementing it, in my opinion, are as high quality as any you're going to find in the industry. And the result 
is something that I think we can be immensely proud of and, and something that I hope will deliver the best possible uh, investment outcomes for our clients over the uh, uh, the years years ahead. The final point is a familiar one. Just remember that diversification is not a sign of weakness, some sort of conviction deficiency. That kind of macho investing has long been proved idiotic in the context of all that we cannot know uh, about the future from our current uh, vantage point. Uh, investing is always about, in my opinion, kind of maximizing your chances and diversification is, is an essential ingredient into that. Really well said. I mean, I think I think what what I take from this is, and and actually comes through a lot as as we're talking in in these podcasts is is having discipline. So so having a plan and and you know having an asset allocation that reflects your risk capacity or risk tolerance, etc., is really key. That's where the discipline comes. But what we were hearing from uh, JP around his process where you reflect on it, you continuously improve, you consider the inputs and ways of doing it. And, and it's not a it's not a static process. It's very much refined on a very frequent basis. But but that frequency doesn't then necessarily lend itself to, to big shifts. It's it's just more that it's a reiteration and a refinement. So I agree, something that hopefully people will see a lot of a lot of thought and hard work and care goes into it but on the basis of, of trying to make sure that we've got the best returns for a given level of risk for, for our clients. So any other comments or thoughts before we wrap up? Well, the final point, I guess, just as you were speaking, I was just thinking about that paper uh, you and I were talking about, about uh, it was looking at the experience of female investors back during the South Sea bubble. And it turned out that, that oh, women yeah. did a lot better than men. And the reason was it was over trading. <laughs> so men traded more and uh, therefore lost more over time. Uh, and actually, I don't know whether that was because the men had less to do and the women were too busy to be trading all the time. But it shows in a result the kind of points about patience and you know having a plan like you exactly uh, exactly said as the as the benefit to positive investment returns over time i'm sure those listeners that their interest is peaked can probably find said paper on linkedin it's a good one it is a good one <laughs> very good well listen will jp thank you very much for for joining me today and for for giving us that update and thank you to our listeners do keep listening and subscribing and we'll speak to you again next week all investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.
Cool.